What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm chilling today. I'm feeling good. It's a good morning. It's sunny out. The birds are out there chirping more than Chelios in the mid-90s. It's about to be summer. It's about to be summer, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. You know what else I'm excited about? We got Jason Isbell on the podcast today. Jason Isbell, incredible singer-songwriter, guitar player. I'm going to tell you this right now. This is a guitar podcast. A lot of people know that Isbell's a great guitar player. A lot of people only know him as singer-songwriter guy. I'll tell you what. This cat can play. This cat can play. And not only can he just, like, play the guitar, but slide guitar, too, really well. Which, as most of you know, or should know if you've tried, it's hard. I've seen a lot of you cats out there thinking you can play slide, but you can't. Your intonation's off. You're sitting there shaking the slide all around because you can't find the note. You can't find the center. And you're out there doing, yeah, get it right. You don't want to know who gets it right? Jason Isbell. He's one of the cats. He's one of the cats. Incredible. He's got a new documentary out. Running with our eyes closed. It's on, uh, what is it on? If I'm going to be honest, they sent me a screener. So I watched it on my browser. What, what is it play? Shadrick, what's that? HBO. HBO. It's on HBO. That's where it's streaming. Go check it out. It's kind of hard to watch at certain parts, but, you know, Jason and I talk about it in here because there's some tense moments, you know? Some family and relational stuff that just happens because it's real life and i like the way that isbel approaches just showing you real life and the authenticity uh i got some before before we get to the interview i got some messages online people are saying love the podcast can you give me some tips though can you can can you just sneak in a couple tips somebody messaged me saying hey i'm starting to be a session guitar player but one of the things i'm running into is my timing is not great especially once we start recording How can I practice my timing better? I sit and practice to a metronome all the time, but it doesn't seem to help my timing. My friend, you are probably practicing to the metronome wrong. I will boil it down into two very simple things. The way that you practice along with a metronome, you have to think it, you have to think about it in two different ways. You have to think about mental awareness of time and you have to think about execution of time. They are two very different things. When you are playing, you need to know whether you are hitting exactly on the beat, a little before the beat, a little bit after, and then you can make artistic decisions afterwards, okay? Sometimes when you're shooting at a dartboard, you want to hit a triple 16. Sometimes you want to hit a bullseye. Sometimes you want to hit a double 12. Okay, fine. But as long as you are purposefully aiming at that spot on the target and then hitting it, great. But the important thing is to do target practice with the metronome. So practice your mental awareness of time and where you feel the center of the beat is a little before, a little after. And then sometimes what happens is producers will have preferences of where the time sits and they might tell you, you're rushing, you're rushing. But really you're just playing exactly in time and they want you to lay back in the groove. Again, you're trying to hit bullseyes, they're trying to hit triple 20s or whatever. You just need to be aware of that and then alter your execution of that. So your awareness of where things are and your awareness of where to hear it and where you're placing it. And then, again, it's it's up to you then to practice the execution of it. They are two very different things. I go deep into this concept in my guitar course, Corey Wong guitar course. It's on the internet. You can find it if you just Google it. But I go into the deep dive 
of how to practice and work on your timing, how to work on your technical facility and all these sorts of things. So to that person who messaged me online, that's my quick tip for you. Think about mental awareness versus execution in your practicing. Don't just blindly practice with a metronome. Have a little more purposeful practice and intention with it. That being said, here we are, Jason Isbell. Let's go. Hey, you guys know about DistroKid yet? If you are an artist, musician, somebody who's trying to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, all of those things, DistroKid is a digital distributor that can get your music on all of those platforms. It's the easiest, fastest way to do so, with accounts even just starting at $19.99 a year per artist. So for me, I have several albums out. I just pay one amount for the year. For all the Corey Wong albums, I just pay one amount, and DistroKid takes 0% royalty. 100% of the royalties come straight to me. Or you use their Teams feature where you can dedicate a certain percentage to one member of your band, a certain percentage to the other, or one of your collaborators. I do this sort of thing, it works amazing. DistroKid is who I use for my albums and it has worked great for me. The stuff gets up there fast. They have a smart ISRC thing. I don't have to worry about coming up with my own codes, registering a lot of the stuff. They just have that. And they also have these really cool design tools. If you are not very design savvy, they'll help you come up with assets for social media and other things to help promote your album. And if you want to use them, you can use my VIP code. Just go distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong and you get 30% off. How about that? Check them out, DistroKid. All right, let's hit this episode. Jason, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I am very excited about the new album, which is coming out soon. I got a sneak peek at it. It's very great. Stoked about the new documentary. Just came out on HBO, Running With Our Eyes Closed. Interesting look on on life, and uh, it's very uh, you're very transparent in it. It is very honest. It is very... Uh, parts of it are hard to watch and parts of it are really enjoyable because you get to see real life. And I appreciated so much of the documentary as somebody who's a touring musician, somebody who's trying to navigate life, navigate the ups and downs of things. Tell me where you're at now that you've seen the documentary and now that you know that people have seen that part of you and that side of it all. Yeah. Well, thank you. First of all, um, uh, you know, and thanks for having me on. I think you're a great, great guitar player. Uh, obviously, a great guitar, inarguably a great guitar player. <laughs> Thank and you. Your band is band is great. I like all your other uh, projects too. You seem to stay really busy and do a lot of cool stuff. So, yeah, I'm happy to be here with you. Um, the documentary, you know, it's a it's a hard thing to watch. It makes me uncomfortable, but. There's only two kinds of music documentaries, really. There's the kind that the artist is comfortable with, and then there's the kind that is not boring. And uh, <laughs> so we opted for the kind that is not boring. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of, there's a little bit of sleight of hand that goes into it. Um, because, 
you know, they don't advertise. Uh, uh, this is this is an artist-backed project, and this is made to get the fan base excited, or this is you know uh, an attempt at a piece of art. You know that those those lines aren't drawn when they're marketing a documentary. So I think a lot of people don't realize a lot of what you're watching is something that is really just a promotional tool, and that's fine. I, I understand that, yeah. but that's not that's not what this was. This was the kind of thing where. Um, you know, I let a camera crew and and Sam Jones, the director, follow us around and see what happened. And uh, you know, over the course of time, we sort of forgot that the cameras were there, and um, which is what you're supposed to do in that situation. Yeah. And you know, life just happened. So it's 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 not an easy thing to watch, but uh, it would be much harder for me, honestly, to watch it if if I didn't think it was any good. Yeah. So you know, the, that's really the decision that you have to make. Well, I appreciated it, and I appreciated seeing your process. And there was a lot of things that I think a lot of musicians will relate to. One thing in particular that I really connected with was when you were talking about just trying to film this thing. You're like, I'm doing this thing for CBS. I'm on my porch, and I'm just like <laughs> trying to put together a compelling performance. And then the Amazon guy comes and drops the thing off, and it's like just. Ah, like I, there's there's such a dichotomy of okay, there's objective success and something that has value, and you you know that you bring value to the world and your audience and your community, but sometimes you just struggle to get it out or do the thing in a way that you feel is really compelling and honest. And I loved the the analogy used of the sandwich and just the two pieces of bread. And I, I'm not <laughs> going to tell it all because I want to leave some teasers for people to go watch it. But I loved that analogy and where so many people have felt that exact thing before. Yeah. It's like I'm already doing a, a, an abridged lesser version of the thing that i wish i was doing uh and now i can't even do that you know yeah it was it was it was frustrating and you know i think especially the lockdown time pandemic time was that way for a, a ton of people no matter what their work was but for artists who are used to making something and sharing it with the world and and you know, negotiating that feedback. And, mm -hmm. and I think if you're, if, you know, if you're in it for the, the purest reasons, um, then the thing that means the most to you is that communication, whether it's with your band or with the audience, it's that, you know, I'm going to tell you what I'm like, and hopefully you see some similarities and we learn that we are more alike than we are different. Um, and, uh, that was just not available. It was like the best you could do was, you know, perform and throw it out into the void, you know, put it in the mail and hope that it turns out okay. And and even then, the daily uh, interruptions had shifted to a point so much to where it was like, you know, I could I, I might sit in one spot and nobody says anything to me for three days, or I might try you know, to, to record one thing and all of a sudden there's an explosion that I have to pay attention to. It's, it's, it was a strange time. It really was. You strike me as somebody who pays attention. I could leave it there, but you, you're, <laughs> you strike me as somebody who pays attention to what's happening in the world, what's happening around you, the things that cause imbalances in the world. You've, you've been vocal about it on the internet. Do you feel a duty to use your music. Now that I, I, I say that differently than using your platform yeah, for, yeah, for yeah. change. Do you feel like you have a duty to use your art and your music to respond to those things? I think so, but I think that 
very that very specific outlet has a list of priorities that aren't the same as the priorities of the platform. You know, the the priorities of the platform, you know, uh, uh, speaking the truth can can very well be number one mm-hmm. on that list of priorities. But the priorities of the art, making art has to be priority number one or else none of the other stuff is going to matter. And I don't say that in the sense of we should avoid discussing these things or we shouldn't bring up anything political or anything divisive mm-hmm. in our work. I don't believe that. I believe that if you can make it work and if you can can – follow the rules that you have set for the way you make art, then yeah, please, by all means. But the, but the most important thing is to make a good song, Yeah, you know, uh, secondarily to that. Yeah. You know, you want to say the right thing and you want to, you want to give people, um, either an example that leads them to a positive direction or, uh, you know, some sort of a, a, a warning or, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways you can use that if you're the kind of person that feels that's necessary. But, but rule number one is make a good song. So yeah. it, it has to, you know, rhyme for lack of a better term. It has to serve that purpose first. Do you feel like there's a piece of art that you've ever like deep down inside felt like, Oh, I have to make this, but I really don't want to like, I, I have to do this, but I just, I, I, I it's going to kill me to do it. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, a lot of Southeastern was that way. The record that I did a decade ago that was kind of our, our breakthrough. Yeah. Um, that that record was a lot of that because, you know, I, everything was raw. I, I had just recently gotten sober when I, when I wrote that, and I was very not sober for a very long time, as you've seen watching the documentary. And um, there were a lot of places there where I felt like this doesn't paint me in the light that I want to be painted in. But I, I, I came up with a rule then that I still stick with now, which is if you, if you write something that makes you feel uncomfortable, um, because of your humanity, you have to keep it in and you have to make it work, Mm. um, no matter what. So when I write those lines that I think, you know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm giving away a, a part of myself that I wanted to keep hidden, you know, then all of a sudden I'm like, damn it. Well, that means I've got to leave it in there. You yeah. Know? <laughs> You're a consummate songwriter, a songwriter, songwriter, but you've done an incredible job of bringing such well-crafted songs out to the, like to a place where, you know, I, I hate to use the word mainstream, but th- there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that sticks with the, I'll, I'll say it this way. There's a lot of things that stick with the general public that don't necessarily have a lot of depth or that might seem commerce forward rather than art forward. But you've done uh-huh. an amazing job being able to connect with the general public, connect with the, just kind of, to, in, at least in my eyes, it seems like you're out there in the zeitgeist, in the thing, and you're able to connect with people and able to tell these stories with songs that have depth and meaning, which isn't as much of a thing now as maybe it was 30, 50 years ago. Two parts of this question are, how do you feel like you were able to do that to connect? And do you see that sort of thing coming back? Or do you feel like we've just, we've just lost the plot in, in the general public? You know, I mean, thank you. If what I'm doing is is more, uh, let's say pop for a better sense, you know, 
pop is what that word used to mean anyway. Um, something that you could latch onto that had some hooks that sounded uh, slick enough and crafted enough. You know, I I lead with the intent, you know, and, and, and the thing that's most important to me when I'm writing a song is what do I want to say, you know, and then second is how do I want to say it. The thing is, my influences have guided me to that spot without without me having to make a conscious decision, mm-hmm. you know, because like I grew up in Muscle Shoals and a lot of the earliest work that I did in studios was at Fame Studios. And yeah. Rick Rick Hall was still alive and he would mm. come in and work with us. And, you know, he was in his 70s and uh, I, I don't I never saw anybody who worked that hard in a studio. He was there all day. He would show up in the morning with the rough mixes from the day before blasting in his car. And this man's 75, 76 years old. Um but I remember one day, uh, John Paul White was in there, John Paul, who was in the Civil Wars, and uh, he and I sort of grew up together. And he was he was recording something, one of his songs for his first solo record, I think. And Rick came in and said, oh, I like that, John Paul. That's nice. Back in my day, we had to make hit records. And... <laughs> John Paul was like, Jesus, Rick, thanks a lot, man. Really, that's, but there's some, there's something in there, though. There was a time when, you know, the work that they were doing there was Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin and the Staples and this really heavy sort of purpose-driven music that had to be a hit for anybody to pay for it to be made or for, for, for these artists to continue to have a career. They, they made things in a certain way where it was very, it was ready to be consumed by the public and by a very wide audience. And that was, you know, the, the studio techniques in that time were basically uh, practically developed. You know, they, they recorded things a certain way. They put musicians together a certain way in order to make hit records and they they thought about that first now the artists might not have you know otis might have been thinking what do i want to say uh to people that's coming from my heart but the but the rest of the people in the studio were thinking how do we get a number one out of this and you know those are my primary influences and so that sort of found its way into the thing that i do um I probably, as far as the music that's made now, you know, I prefer the stuff that is not super popular, and I like to listen to things that sound weird. Uh, but that didn't come until I was touring in my twenties, you know. And when I when I joined the Drive By Truckers, you know, I grew up in a place in Alabama where there wasn't any like left of the dial radio. There were no college stations. There, you know, we weren't listening to the replacements and neutral milk and stuff you know but when i got in the van that's what they were listening to and it it blew my mind because i was like oh you can completely ignore all the rules of commerce and music and and just get right to the point um but that was not quite as formative on me as an early musician as listening to those r&b records and then later on some of the big rock records uh that happened in muscle shoals and so i think that's just a natural thing for me what i what i you know by serving my influences i'm serving a lot of people who were really trying to make hit records back in those days yeah that makes a lot of sense and i've been to fame studios what an amazing place man yeah isn't it it still looks pretty much identical to how it looked back in the day yeah i guess that makes a lot of sense the whole muscle shoals thing because there was a lot of industry but there was high art and industry at once 
Yeah, what an amazing thing. I mean, I, th- I personally, I think that's the greatest era uh, for American music. And I also think that, that that R&B that a lot of people call soul music, but the people who made it called it rhythm and blues. I, yeah. I think that's the, the peak. I think that's the apex um, of American art in general, really. Mm. I think that's the best thing that we've ever given the world. Because it was that you know they were hits. I mean, the, sitting on the dock of the bay was a hit. Yeah, but but man, isn't it beautiful for a hit? Like there was a time when th- that's what your number one record sounded like. Yeah, isn't that amazing to to think about that? Yeah, it really is. I've always been interested in geographical location and sound and feel. Like I'm from Minneapolis, mm-hmm. so there's like a Minneapolis sound, the Minneapolis funk thing. R and sure, you know, yeah. there's. There's an L.A. sound that a lot of people associate with certain things, a New York jazz sound, a London thing now. I'm curious, for a lot of people that are unfamiliar with roots music in general, Americana, I mean, those those phrases can can be so wide cast, like jazz yeah. can be wide. Like, that could mean a billion different things. But mm-hmm. it, it just it, interpret that term however you will. But I'm curious— from somebody who's from that area and so deeply ingrained in it, can you tell me a little bit about your interpretation of what makes the music of Alabama and Muscle Schultz different than music out of Texas, Tennessee, Louisiana, other areas that kind of have, that that could be lumped together? How do you say this is different from Alabama or the Muscle Schultz thing? I think I think there is a uh, an integration that you hear on Muscle Shoals records that you don't hear everywhere else. And um, this is this is a very complicated topic that sure. I have, you know, discussed with a lot of people over the years. And I'm not saying that they were ignoring the issues of the day and that everybody was getting along and everything was hunky-dory and everybody was equal in the studio because that was not the case. Uh, contrary to some ill-advised writing about that time period that was not the case everybody was not on a level playing field but sonically when you listen to those records you hear one thing that people have considered to be black music and one thing that people have considered to be white music and it's happening at the same time and it's coming out of the same speakers and um I think that that sort of country soul you know uh happened there in a way that um really informed what later on became new soul you know i think i think bill withers was a direct uh uh line from from stuff that was being made in muscle shoals um like if you go back and listen to some of the stuff with uh you know pickett and 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 uh Dwayne allman um or you know some of the like early the demos that otis was doing when he was playing the guitar himself and then listen to you know joe south uh you hear so many elements crossing over between, you know, when they split popular records into, you know, country music and race records, you know, and, and, and you hear that sort of come back together in a way that, to me, I mean, obviously to a lot of people, it should have been that way all along. Sh- there shouldn't have been a necessity for that. But I think Muscle Shoals combined what a lot of people thought of as black music and what a lot of people thought of as white music in a way that 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 worked really, really, really well. As I'm hearing these records back and comparing them to these other places, you're right. I like I I feel that exact thing. That's cool. It's kind of like it was, you know, in in hindsight, you know, which is which is it's easy to say this, but it sounds like music that was made 
by everybody for everybody. You know, that's a very simplified way of putting it. But, um, it, it, you know, they were they were trying to sell a whole lot of records, and they were doing it with black musicians and white musicians in the same spot together and you can just you can hear that you know you can hear when it worked and when it didn't but it's it's a really it's a beautiful mix yeah did you start your earlier years playing more session work rather than songwriter and your own music like did you did you have a even remotely like a career as session guitar guy not a whole lot i mean uh, it it uh it sort of developed simultaneously and separately because I was writing all these songs and and not really playing them for anybody because I didn't think they were great. And uh, luckily, you know, that was that was an option back then was just keep practicing quietly until you've got something you're ready to show everybody. Yeah. Nowadays, it's like as soon as you figure something out, you put it up online. Yeah. <laughs> and it's terrifying to me because it's like, man, thank God this didn't happen when I was 12 or 13 years old. But um, at the same time, uh, the folks at Fame were putting together a group of young musicians to come in and really sort of learn how to work in the studio. Yeah. And so I was I was going in and doing that. And we were cutting, you know, demos and work tapes and, and sometimes finished product like master recordings. But uh, but we were all teenagers and, and and, you know, we were sort of shuffling in and out trying to figure out the process of it with with Rick at the helm most of the time. So yeah, I didn't I didn't wind up playing on a whole lot of like uh records for wide release, but I got a lot of practice in there. And you know, Rick liked me, so I got lucky, but he would he would yell at you. He didn't care if you were 17 years old, man. He would he would, you know, I remember sitting out in the hall one day and uh this kid who was younger than me, we were both teenagers, but he was he was probably just barely driving age, you know. He came out of the of the uh tracking room uh looking all sad and mopey and he said rick told me to come out here and send you in he said i couldn't play this part and he thought probably you could so you have to go in and do it i was like he just he just kicked you like this is a demo session he's trying to teach (laughs) you how to be a studio musician and he just kicked you out to go find me yourself and like made you do it what an asshole you know uh but he was he was he was tough he was tough on musicians and i got lucky because he liked me and, and Jimbo, my bass player, had the same experience. Rick really liked Jimbo, but, you know, Jimbo was great from day one, so that was an easy thing. Did you find yourself from the beginning paying attention to certain things in music that you noticed others weren't? That's a good question. I mean, maybe so. You know, we were kind of all paying attention, though. I mean, it was, you know, these were folks who wound up being professional musicians for the most part it was, yeah. it was there was a there was a strange number of us from that area because there wasn't a whole lot else to do and we did have that sort of history um but really what i was trying to do and that th- this was this was a big part of my early musical education was trying to learn how to stay out of the way you know because i remember like one of the first times i ever went and sat in with a band uh, this guitar player named Barry Billings used to play at, at a Mexican restaurant in Florence every Friday and Saturday night. And because we had, uh, the reason he had to play at a Mexican restaurant was because we had liquor laws that meant you had to sell more food than alcohol 
to have an establishment. And they would come by and they would check your receipts every month. And, you know, you had to literally sell more food than alcohol. It was a strange Bible Belt thing. But it worked out great for me and for Jimbo and for some of our buddies because then they couldn't make it 21 and up. So, you know, it had to be all ages. So my parents would drop me off at this restaurant at, at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. And I would sit there with, you know, my one like cheese dip or something until three o'clock in the morning and listen to this band play. And I wouldn't even be old enough to drive yet. And Barry would get me up to sit in and play with these guys. And, um, you know, I remember the first time, like I was nervous and I'd been sitting in my room playing a whole bunch and I just started playing the guitar, like a switch. I just started playing lead guitar yeah. and did not stop, you know. <laughs> and luckily, Barry was a nice enough guy. He turned around. He said, hey, so if somebody's singing or somebody else is soloing, you might want to lay back and play some <laughs> chords or, you know. It's a very so kind nice thing to say it that way, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. It was the, gr- the grace of that was, yeah, yeah that went a long way. But uh, that's just the kind of dude that he is. He did that for a lot of young musicians. But, you know, from that point on, I was like, when do I not play? Because mm. the, the the part where it's like where I play, I, I can handle that part. But, but where do I get out of the way? And how do I add uh, without distracting, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's been really, as far as my studio approach, the whole thing for my whole life is like, how do I how do I add something to this or realize when it doesn't need it, you know, and, and still be in the room and be necessary? Yeah, because, I mean, you're a monster guitar player. Dude, I mean, you are very <laughs> you. good. I mean, people could just look at the way you play acoustic and accompany yourself, and it is a, a list. But also, the way you play slide, the way you do just regular traditional lead guitar, this stuff's incredible. What I'm curious about is kind of how you've balanced, because a lot of people that have those monster guitar skills, they kind of want to flex those <laughs> more than yeah. more than maybe what an audience wants from them. Mm-hmm. But, and, and of course, that is so subjective and whatever. And you, and you have, and, and it's to totally, your taste. Yeah. But you've, You've had this journey as a guitar player, and you've had this journey as a songwriter, singer, artist. I'm curious how those two have lined up and if they've conflicted with each other and what that internal conversation is with yourself as a guitar player and as singer-songwriter. Thank you. First of all, thank you very much. That's, of course. That means a lot coming from you. Um, but, you know, and, and secondly, that's a great question. Nobody really ever asked me that, but... Um, not in that way. Uh, early on, it conflicted. You know, um, my first few solo records, uh, when I was producing myself, it was tough uh, because I had this need um, to 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 play more and to prove something, yeah. or just to enjoy myself more. You know, because it's it's more fun to rip a solo than it is to <laughs> sing about cancer. We all know this. You know, um, but as time went on, it became a a huge advantage and something that I'm incredibly uh, grateful for because melodically it just gives me opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise as a songwriter. You know, if, if I don't know what to do, if I can't come up with a melody, you know, I will just sit and play 
and then I'll take that melody and put words to it. And it's sometimes it's as simple as that. And what a beautiful thing to be able to do because, you know, you've already created tension and release uh, from the melody of what you're playing on the instrument. And then you put words to that. And once you get the phrasing right and get it comfortable, then you're halfway there. Um, and then, you know, knowing a little bit about chord structure and, and a little bit of theory and, you know, the things that I learned as a guitar player, um, really helped a ton as a songwriter because then you don't have to rely on uh strictly lyrical moves to make your point you know you can you can sort of soundtrack the movie that you're trying to 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 put on with with these lyrics and these words um but it did take some uh confidence on my part because i had to get to the place where i thought okay everybody knows you can play the guitar stop trying to t show everybody you can play the guitar <laughs> and you know and also the idea of like like every record i'll have a, a couple of songs where i just go for it and yeah. don't even think about you know restraining myself as a guitar player um and those are the ones that are you know that really helps the other songs because then if i'm writing a song that does not need a wanky guitar solo i don't have to put it there because i'm like listen later in the set yeah. you're gonna get plenty of time with the fuzz pedal it's gonna be fine you get to use the marshall later it's gonna be okay yeah this song does not need that you yeah. know and uh, it took me a long time to get to that point um and I, I don't know that people necessarily realize that about like Southeastern has, uh, you know, Super 8. And people are always saying, why is this song on this record? That song is there so the other songs can exist, <laughs> you know. So, so I can get through Elephant without having to play like a, a 16 bar solo. <laughs> um, it, it, it's uh, it's something that I've negotiated over time with myself until it's really, it's really become a, a very helpful thing for me. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting point that a lot of times artists need to have something on the album or have something in the set so everything else can be the way that it should be in its purest yeah. and most appropriate form. Reward yourself. Everybody has a cheat day, you know? <laughs> You're not that you're not going to be able to keep up your exercise routine if you don't spend one day on the couch eating donuts, <laughs> and that's how it's supposed to go in the live set. Like I can I can operate with all this restraint and play acoustic guitar for an hour and a half every night, but there's gonna be a moment where I'm gonna turn shit up and play the Les Paul really loud through the Marshall. And uh, if you don't if you do it once, you just get out of your system. You can sleep that <laughs> night. And you don't have to do it all night long. Is there something that you try to accomplish with the live show that's different than your albums? No, I think that happens on its own, you know? Um, mm. Yeah, I think if you're in the moment, that happens. If you stay, you know, like they used to tell me in rehab, if you keep your head and your ass in the same place, uh, that will happen on its own. And, and that's really it. Like, the live show is not a document. The, the live show is, is, is a, a communal experience and to do that right you gotta you gotta be there so most of the time what i'm trying to do in the live show from moment to moment is is be present mm. you know not think about and this is why i started making set lists i didn't used to make set lists but of course now with all the guitar changes and the lighting cues and everything it, it's yeah necessary but you know, used to, I wouldn't make a set list and I would find myself halfway through a song thinking about three songs later, mm. you know, how are we going to situate this? What are we going to play next? And 
Now my primary concern, number one, every night on stage is being in the moment. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's it. Everything else follows from there. You know, all of the 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 connection and the crescendo of it and the the uh, proper sort of narrative structure that a, that a live show takes on. It all happens on its own if I can just remain right where I am and, and sing the lyric that I'm singing and think about it, think about what I was doing when I wrote it or, or, or how I want it to sound, you know. Sometimes there's this sort of meditative thing that happens with the live show, and I know you know this, but there's this, there's this place that you go to where uh, – it's a sort of Zen thing where you're you're just uh, you're, you're just floating, and it's it's the opposite of going through the motions because you know you just kind of ride this sort of wave, um, and usually not everybody is there at the same time. Sometimes you know there's one guy over there that's thinking about numbers or thinking about notes, and uh, you know, but when it happens and everybody hits it together and you're all sort of riding that wave at the same time. Um, you know, it's beautiful and it happens because everybody is very firmly planted in that moment and they're not thinking about anything other than the sound that they're making right then. You know, sometimes the best way to get there is, uh, like I've told people who have stage fright, just just focus on the note that is coming out of your mouth. Just mm. focus on the breath, focus on the sound of your own voice and everything else goes away. Yeah. Did you ever deal with stage fright? No, that's not no. I'm, I'm, yeah. That's not my. That's not my thing. Um, the only time I get a little anxious or nervous is when like uh, I'm doing something different. Like if mm. somebody's sitting in, or if I'm sitting in with somebody else, or you know, if I'm playing a song that that is like a cover and I haven't done it many times or something like that. Yeah, the only ever time I ever feel any sort of thing like that is if I just feel unprepared. That's right. That's it. Yeah. 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 Totally. And some, and you know, more often than not, for me, that's the best thing I can be is unprepared. Sure. <laughs> uh, and and every time, like after it's over, I'm like, yeah, of course that went great because you weren't exactly ready for it. You know, it's kind of like in the studio when I try to, like, as a producer, you know, I try to get that point where everybody in the room. You know, you get a room full of really great musicians, and then you don't give time them time to learn, to learn the, song. the song. Yeah, you know that moment where they're still creating something, yeah. and they're not they're not reenacting something. You know, and and I, I'm sure I function my highest at that point too, where it's like I'm still looking for these notes. So yeah. if I find them, wow, that's a miracle. Of course, you're going to find them if you played it a hundred times. Man, that is exactly how the Wolfpack records are made, where it's like we yeah. we work out the tunes, we're, we figure them out right in the studio, r- kind of writing them together. Just when it feels like, I think we got it, boom, we roll that's, the tape, and like two or three takes in, it's like, that's it. That's <laughs> us too. Yeah, totally. It's it's Because it, if you keep going... Uh, then you're you're just you're playing something that you've rehearsed, yeah. And that's that's great. That's what you're going to do when you get on stage. But that's not what you're supposed to be documenting. You're supposed to be documenting some type of creation happening. So is that your entire philosophy of 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 making albums? Then is that you you want to capture a moment? That you're going to create something once, and you want to capture it right at the beginning of when it's created. Do you do you see that as? The starting point, or do you see that as like this is the anchor of what the thing is? I think it's a starting point, really, because I mean, I will go back and think, 
you know, man, I could have, I could have done that now. If we recorded that song now, after playing it for ten years, it would be so good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, but that's the beauty of it, and you have to be confident enough to let that be. Yeah. Let that exist that way because. Uh, you know, it just all my favorite records wouldn't be the same if they had practiced more. Like, mm. like Sticky Fingers wouldn't sound like that if, yeah. you know, <laughs> you had Daryl Jones and and forty years behind you of playing those songs over and over. And and I mean, Lord knows I love Daryl Jones. That's not a slight on great musicians. Yeah, because some people, some people you got to catch them real, real early because they like. You know, Jerry Douglas or Chris Thiele or somebody comes in to play on something, you better hurry up and hit record because yeah. they're going to learn that shit fast. It's like tying their shoes, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, they're supposed to be, uh, it's supposed to be a little bit risky and a little bit dangerous. And it's supposed to sound like you could fuck this up. You know, it, it, it might not, this might not work. You shouldn't know until the end of the song if they nailed it or not. I love that. You've put out a lot of records. You've been a part of different bands, different versions of yourself, yourself with the the 400 unit. I'm wondering, you've had to go through different eras of being a person, different eras of being an artist, as far as the, the overall vision, being a songwriter. And, and as you grow and mature in life and as different life experiences happen, you change the way that you do things. Is there a way that you do things now that's very different than when you were doing them before? Or is there something that you kind of look back on and and wish, if I knew this 10 years ago, I, it would have been better art? And and, and actually, I, I'm going to take back the better because that, that, right, that, that, right. that's, yeah, I, I'm yeah, going to take that back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Um, yeah, you don't want to make that question too easy to answer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my day to day life is extremely different now yeah. than it used to be. But these are all for very positive reasons. Like the things that I was searching for, then I have found, and that's given me the opportunity to search for new things. You know, and it's kind of like if you want to make a, a a metaphor, it's not going to be perfectly accurate because it's a metaphor for life. But um, you know, when I'm writing a song. The, the the older I get and the, and the more songs that I write, the more challenging it is to write a song. Mm-hmm. It's harder for me now to write a song than it was 20 years ago. Um, not because I've run out of inspiration, because that's, that's a joke. There's, there's shit everywhere to write about. All you got to do is pay attention. But it's because I'm, I'm harder on myself. The editing process takes longer. I won't accept the things that I used to accept as okay, yeah. you know? Um, and that's the same way really with my life every day. It's, 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 you know, very gratefully I've had some success. So I have access to things, uh, comfort when I'm touring, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my choices, a lot of my day 20 years ago was based on just making it from one show to the next. Mm. And, and, you know, also psychologically, it was just keeping my head above water and keeping from be you know, uh, keeping that sort of like, uh, um, um, void, uh, as far away from me as possible. And I did a lot of really stupid things and made a lot of bad choices because I didn't realize, uh, uh, that the that the void had no power over me. You know, I mm. thought I needed to increase my confidence. Uh, all these things that were that were uh, surface needs. You know, I didn't have 
a good solid faith in myself and who I was and my value as a person. Um, so I did a lot of stupid things to try to make myself feel better uh, about being me. And and I have uh, received uh, over the years the gift of of being pretty sure of myself and being pretty happy with who I am, mm-hmm. uh, which means that it's going to get more difficult. You know, those choices are going to get more specific and more precise, and they're going to narrow down to, you know, not just um, did I ruin anybody's life today, but, you know, uh, was I fair in every single conversation? Was I was I giving? Did I listen closely enough to what my wife or my child or my friends had to say? You know, used to be it was like I didn't run anybody's car off of a bridge, so I did a good job today. <laughs> now I know I'm not going to run anybody's car off a bridge. Did I listen? Listen closely enough to what they were telling me and really try to understand what they were saying. And the songs are the same way. It's, it's, you know, it's not, can I get through three and a half or four minutes of rhyming and make it sound like a song should sound? It's, did I say something that I've never heard before, you mm-hmm. know, and did it scan? Did it, did it, did it sound comfortable? Did it sound overheard um, rather than constructed? You know, and that's a that's a wonderful place to be. I couldn't be any more grateful about having the ability to refine, you know, my work and my life. I love that. The way that you talk about songwriting, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that are students of the craft, students of the technical side of it, probably have somewhat of an understanding of it. But the one of the intangibles that that you seem to have a strong grasp of, and most pretty much every great songwriter does, is something that helps give them a signature voice in their writing, gives them something unique, a certain perspective on life, their own life experiences that they're able to put into it. And some people have a hard time finding what those are. Do you have any insight to budding songwriters that are trying to find that thing? about their voice as a writer? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, so stop looking for it. Mm. Immediately, stop looking for your voice as a writer. I was thinking about that this morning. I saw some something I read this morning, somebody talking about finding their voice as a writer. And you're looking for the wrong thing. You know, when Amanda and I got married, we went around to a lot of couples, and we still do this, but a lot of couples that have been together for a long time that we knew, and we asked them, what's the secret, you know? Um, And they had different answers. A lot of people with sense of humor or, you know, just don't give up on each other or, you know, stick by the decision that you made no matter how hard things get. But John Prine said, you have to remain vulnerable, and, you know, of course, John Prine's going to give the best answer to just about anything. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what he did. But, you know, he had a very recognizable voice as a songwriter. And it was it was the fact that he was open emotionally and he realized that he had something worth saying. And so he just let himself talk. Mm. And I think that's kind of the trick. And it is a little bit... Uh, you know, ethereal. It's kind of hard to pin down, but but just don't run from the things that you might consider mistakes. You know, if mm. if, if you think that this doesn't sound like any song that I've heard before, so it, it must not be right, uh, second guess that instinct and think maybe it doesn't sound like anybody else because it's mine, you know. Mm. Um, and if you do that over and over and you remain open and don't judge yourself, 
that's the thing. There's a Neil Young line where he says, people don't want to hear a song you like. They want to hear a song you wrote. Mm. And that that's huge for me because it's like, don't judge the work while you're doing it, you know. Uh, save that for later. Later on when you're in the booth, you can you can judge whether it's any good or not. Or after it's mastered, you can figure out if you want to put it out. But, but give yourself a whole lot of leeway and a whole lot of time to do what you think might be a mistake. Because just like playing the, the wrong note, it's not that. It's the one you play right after it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I think that's the thing, you know. That's it. Just let yourself screw up. And then keep moving, and then eventually you'll have a chance to go back and fix it if it's wrong. But more often than not, you'll find out that's not wrong. That's just me. Love that. That is a wonderful answer. Um, there's also a lot of guitar players listening, so we got to we. I and I watched let's your rig. Nerdy. Yeah, yeah I, I watched your nerdy. rig rundown. I've I've seen a bunch of videos of you. I've watched your studio stuff. Watched some of your live things. I'm like, oh, this cat's got some gear. It's I, I love it, man. I'm, it's I mean, can you like? First of all, the first of all, the songwriter is buying all this stuff as a gift to the guitar player, right? The guy who owns his catalog is buying these things and giving them to the guitar player guy. As a guitar player, I could not afford any of this shit. I would be very happy with my custom shop uh, Gibsons and my reissue Fenders, and that would be great. But the uh, the 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 songwriter record label owner likes to buy gear and (laughs) give it to the other part of me that plays the guitar i love that yeah so (laughs) you've got so many cool guitars so many cool amps pedals i want to try i want to try to 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 whittle this down a little bit you've got this you can take a second to think about it rest of your life you got two guitars two amps and four pedals that you can have in your possession, what are they going to be? First of all, are we considering the valuation of these instruments? Because that's going to be a very different answer. Like if I take just two guitars out, you said two guitars, four pedals, and two amps, right? Yeah, and it's just like you're going to use this is this is your these are your tools. This is so what, it doesn't matter if they get fucked up because that I immediately think I, if I just took two guitars out. They're gonna get fucked up, and uh, yeah. So okay. they, they're they're gonna li- they're gonna last forever. They're, you're not let's, gonna let's, have problems. Okay. You're, you're not gonna have Thank problems you. with them. They're if if it if it drops, it's gonna get fixed, and it's gonna be fine. Okay, yeah, great. All right. I mean, I don't know if these answers are gonna be satisfying because the 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 red eye Les Paul. Yeah, you know that's the greatest guitar I've ever played or heard ever. That was ever, Ed ever. King's. It was yeah, and I have it here beside me, and it's. Uh, it's amazing. It's clean as a whistle, and the 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 middle position is perfect. The neck position is just bright enough, um, and the bridge is a, a ice pick when you need it to be. Yeah, it's just it does everything you want to let. It's got the perfect fifty nine profile. Um, it it it's just immaculate. It stays in tune. I take it out of the case right now. It'll be in tune, and it's a Les Paul. It's immaculate. Um, that a lot of that is uh, due to uh, Joe Glazer's work on the nut. Yeah, that's that's Joe's primary focus. He he he, you know, Nick will do the frets and somebody else will do the the the, the tuning machine. But it, when it comes to the nut, Joe does that himself. He's like, <laughs> and he won't he won't replace the nut. It's so funny. Me and my 
Tex were laughing about this last week because I have a, a an old strat that needs a nut. And he's like, I'll take it to Joe if that's okay. And I was like, yeah, but he's not going to put a nut on it. You know what he's going to do? He's going to put some bone powder under there and he's going to raise it up <laughs> because you can't, it's, it's like a tailor. It's like going into a tailor and asking him for a suit that he knows is not going to look right on you. And he'll say, well, that's an interesting idea, but then he'll do it his way. Um, <laughs> That's how Joe is with the nut. He has to preserve the original nut. Anyway. But hold on, um, though. Let's, let's pause for a second and say, there's one level of gear nerd and, and gear <laughs> guy. And then there's, a, there's another level where it's like, yeah, I got the guy who does my tuners. I got the guy who does my frets. Oh, this yeah. cat does the, the nuts. Like, all right, man. I would have just brought it to one guy and just trusted them to do it. Or, you know, yeah. There's actually. But we are, we are make, yeah, we're making a joke about not replacing a nut. That's, that's <laughs> how bad we are. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so you got bad. your red eye. That's number one. I guitar. got the red eye, and and I gotta have a strat. You know, I, I now love, we're talking. I love old tellies, but I have a 1960 slab board strat that I bought at Carter Vintage. I don't know, maybe six, seven years ago, and um, it is uh, just really perfect. It's perfect. It's it's uh, you know, I started out really playing on strats. That's the thing that I spent the most formative time on. So I'm still more comfortable with that guitar. Yeah. And uh, this one is is just right. Um, so it would be those two. It would be the 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 red eye and the 1960 strat. It's just like uh, Mike McCready's um, strat from Pearl Jam, which yeah. he thought was a 59 until they went to make that. Uh, custom shop version, and then they took they took the neck off, and they're like, "This is a this is a 1960." Um, and he came out and sat in with us one night uh, a couple tours ago in Seattle, and he brought that guitar. Really? And I, yeah, yeah, I was amazed. Like he just brings it, hands it to my guitar tech, and is like, "Hey, this is the one I'll use," you know. And of course, me and Sadler were like, "That's really that guitar." Holy <laughs> shit, you know. Um, but. Uh, that yeah, those those are the two guitars. For pedals, um, I guess you know I have to have uh, some kind of reverb uh, because uh, uh, you know my amps aren't going to have the amps that I choose aren't going to have reverb. So I got to have something. So I would probably go with like a that Chase Bliss uh, CXM, yeah, um, with the flying faders because that's just got every option. It's got it's like taking Bob Clearmountain and putting him into a pedal and taking him on tour with you. Um, and so, yeah, I would take that CXM and then I would probably, uh, honestly, I'd probably take the, the Benson chase bliss, uh, automaton preamp. Yeah. Uh, because, because of variety and also because there is a setting on that guitar where, I mean, on that pedal where you can not like find the perfect, spot on the on the cue in the mid-range and you can make uh, a less paul sound out of phase mm. you can make it sound like grainy you know like that magnets reverse yeah um yeah and so i would take that for different levels of gain yeah um and then uh do they have to be pedals or can they be like uh uh just off-board effects why don't you pitch your idea and i'll prove or okay. disprove yeah <laughs> I, I would say so what about like uh, uh an echoplex. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, 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 an echoplex. Yeah, yeah. that's all out. Yeah, I gotta, yeah, I gotta have an echoplex because you know you got the preamp section there, which is a yep. brilliant boost, and then uh, uh, also the the delay uh, slapback function on that, and then probably uh, the uh, Dallas Rangemaster, the original treble boost. All right, 
Yeah, I, I have one of those that is, it's unbelievable. It does one thing and it is volatile and you got to get your impedance right if you're going to run it through a rig, you know, it yeah. takes forever. You got to use all this different shit to get the impedance or it won't react the way it's supposed to. But when it works, it is the most incredible thing in the world. Like you can make uh, Les Paul sound like a Strat and you can make a Tele sound like a Les Paul. It's, it's brilliant brilliant just one little germanium diode and one knob and you're done love that yeah and then the amps um i have uh one of the first 10 blues breakers really i do yeah it's right over here here let's see can you see this thing it's this oh yeah dude look at that guy that's one of the first 10 it is, yeah. White knobs. White knobs, yeah. Yeah, I've got a, a letter from uh, Jim Marshall to the previous owner where he says that uh, this was one of the first 10 combos that he built. Wow. And uh, he said the only other one at that time that he knew of belonged to Gary Moore. And, uh, you know, it's 212s, and um, it's just the perfect volume, and it sounds exactly like you want a JTM Marshall circuit to sound, yeah. you know. Um, so I would take that and then I would take, uh, the, um, uh, high power tweed twin, uh, okay. 58 yeah. high power tweed twin. Um, then any room you, you know, you've got enough amp for any stage, whether you're on in-ears or not. Yeah. Um, so you've got plenty of volume. I mean, if I'm taking two amps, there's going to be, I'm going to spend a good 20 years of my life telling people, I'm sorry, I can't turn down anymore, but that's just, <laughs> they're just going to have to deal with that. <laughs> you didn't say anything about attenuators so i'm not taking yeah no you don't need one yeah no they can live with that shit um but yeah and those are you know those are kind of boring answers because that's all extremely expensive crazy shit you know um but i'm one of those guys that that can hear the difference in that stuff and 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 anything that's five percent less yeah i'm like yeah that's not quite as good as the tweed twin or that's not quite as good as the range map you know it's almost there uh but i will say this as an addendum if i was going on tour in a van now with mm. my band um i would take like you know neural dsp or something yeah and run everybody through that and just have to load in the drums how how amazing would that be no trailer no need for <laughs> carrying an svt up the stairs at smith's old bar or any of that shit anymore just take one little pedal plug everybody into it and go ahead yeah i mean you 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 brought up two great points where is that five percent difference there you brought up digital i i noticed in your dock there's a lot of Mostly analog gear, but there's some digital stuff. I see you going into mm -hmm. Pro Tools. I see some digital stuff here and there. Where do you stand on analog versus digital? When does it matter to you? You just trust your ears. That's it. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you trust your own ears, you'll never go wrong in the analog versus digital question. Sometimes I can hear the difference. Usually if I'm playing in a big old room uh, with a big PA, uh, I can't. You know, My live rig in the States is pretty much all analog signal chain but MIDI controlled. So everything is on. Yeah. And then you know it turns things off and reroutes the signal chain using MIDI. Yeah. Um, but in the studio... 
if something sounds weird to me and sounds like it is not uh, an analog sound and I don't want that, then I won't use it. Yeah. And if it doesn't sound weird to me, I don't give a shit what it's called or who made it or how much it costs. If it sounds good, it sounds good. But you, you just have to trust yourself, you know? Yeah. And uh, being as somebody who's played through a lot of the gear, you know what to listen for. And, you, and being somebody who pays attention, you know what 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 it is yeah yeah and and you know there there are people who would argue with me and you know and that's fine and i'm i'm not gonna yell at them and say you know i'm not i I don't have like a firm opinion on one thing versus the other but if you'll give me something to a b i'll tell you which one sounds better yeah you know um and a lot of times you can have a wonderful amp and great pedals and a great guitar and somebody puts the mic one half of an inch away from where it should be and you might as well be up there with a with a gorilla you know and and, and, or, or you know the worst whatever think about the worst amp you can imagine you know um uh, because you got to mic it right yeah. you know i've got this old ac15 uh that's like the first generation fawn uh 61 ac15 and if you mic it correctly it sounds unbelievable yeah. but if you mic it wrong it sounds like one of those Zelensky cigarette pack mics inside a shoebox you know <laughs> <laughs> it's it if you have the right people then those analog and digital conversations uh kind of go away yeah and and you got the right people engineering your record or running your live sound it doesn't really make that much difference man sometimes i will feel like i have the best guitar tone in the world i'll send my tracks to somebody and they'll like put a high pass filter on oh, like yeah. 400 i'm like you just cut my legs off man i got you no money yeah you, what you took everything from me. I know, I know. But sometimes the best tone doesn't work in the mix either. Yeah, that's true. You know, like I've, I've t- I talked to Stapleton about Les Pauls, Chris Stapleton, and he de- he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't play Les Pauls. And he says he just can't find space for him in the mix. Mm. And I mean, with that guy's voice, I understand. You know, you don't. He, his voice is so huge and yeah. takes up such a wide frequency range that you don't want to have to avoid your guitar. You know. Uh, sonically so I, I get it 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 depends on what you're trying to record um but uh, les paul's more versatile than people realize sure. if you use the tone knobs and you use the volume knobs you can make it do a lot of things yeah love that well jason thank you so much man it is such a, a pleasure to have you on i'm such a fan of what you're doing thank you for everything you do and it's great to hang Thank you so much, Corey. I, I enjoyed talking with you. And uh, yeah, you're a fantastic musician. It was, it was a lot of fun. Great. Thanks, man. Talk soon. Peace. Have a good day. There you have it. Jason Isbell. This guy's the real deal, okay? I'm not going to lie. This cat's legit. I did the deep dive before this interview. I listened to all of his records. I listened to the new record that's coming out. It's cool. He's got stuff that actually just sounds like cool also. You know, it's like one of those interesting things where sometimes things sound good, sometimes they sound cool, sometimes they're cool and good. That's what Isbell does. Anyways, love the guitar playing, love the singing, songwriting. He's great. Thanks for hanging with us. We will see you next time. Peace! Peace!